Hello and welcome back to the Moses and Methuselah podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis and in this series, Peter Silen and I draw on our many years of working in the financial markets to chew the fat about current topics of interest, whether it's stocks and shares, politics, diplomacy or even books and films into which we sometimes also wander. We hope that you'll find some value in our friendly but often very different perspectives, one continental, one UK-centric, on the big issues of the day. In this week's episode, we're going to be talking about Ukraine. This is a subject which has come to the forefront of the attention of both governments and indeed the financial markets, where we're facing what could be a significant geopolitical threat here in Europe. And this has been prompted by uh, President Putin's decision to deploy around 100,000 troops on the borders of Ukraine. We don't know what his real intentions are, whether he actually plans to invade or not. But let's see. There's going to be a lot of talking this week, diplomacy going on between the Americans, NATO and Mr. Putin. But Peter, let's just kick off. I'm going to ask you, with your great knowledge of Europe, Central Europe and Eastern Europe in particular, what do you think is happening here? What's uh, what's going on? Good morning, Jonathan. It's nice to be back online. Um, you made a comment about financial markets. I think it's too early to tell whether the Ukrainian threat is hitting financial markets. I don't think it is, but it doesn't mean that it cannot develop its own momentum. But for the time being, I would say no. Um, I think with regard to a threat, the threat of Russia invading Ukraine is definitely here on the table. It's been on the table for quite a while. But the superpowers, whether they're the US or the EU, they're either unready, unable or unwilling to confront this in the way that it should be confronted. And of course, President Putin knows that very, very well. He knows that he's the stronger man in this. And he's playing off one against the other. He's playing off the Americans against the Europeans. Within Europe, he's playing off one country against another. The Germans, for example, very much pro-Russian. That's got to do with a whole lot of things, not only the Nord Stream 2, but also the fact that you have a socialist-led government now, and they've always been in bed with the Russians, so that's relatively normal. I think above all, what's worrying, Jonathan, is the way that Putin is playing around. He's playing with fire, quite literally, and he's wearing a smirk on his face as he's so doing. The result is that his demands are not only unacceptable, but they are totally outrageous. Well, let's look at that a little bit more in detail then. I mean, we do know that, uh, as you referred to, uh, Mr. Putin has, uh, or Putin, we perhaps should call him, uh, has not given the respect of a title. He has uh, a bit of form here. I mean, we know that he, you know, in in Georgia in in 2008 and uh, in obviously in the Crimea in 2014, where he just took advantage of the fact that uh, he was facing no real opposition to his uh, military exploitation of those moves into those two countries. So he's maybe doing that again. But So what are his demands and what is uh, unreasonable about them? Let's just uh, tick them off, shall we? Well, the f- first of all, he's demanding a veto on the inclusion of any new NATO members. Well, that's totally absurd. Secondly, he's demanding a withdrawal of all the existing facilities that NATO have in their member countries. And thirdly, he is 
demanding confirmation that Ukraine will never be allowed to become a NATO member. Those are the three main points. I may have missed one out, but those are very, very heavy points. They go completely against the entire NATO framework, what NATO is all about, what NATO member countries have agreed to, one for all and all for one. And so Putin is not that stupid as to believe that the Americans especially are going to accede to these demands. He's not that stupid. But he also realizes very well that President Biden particularly is a very weak man when it comes to foreign policy in general and when it comes to Russia policy in particular. And President Biden didn't only not cover himself in glory when he withdrew from Afghanistan, but he exposed his soft underbelly. And of course, Putin is right there taking advantage of it. Yes, and I think that's an important issue because we do know that the Americans... Uh, have been putting out noises, at least, that their primary concern these days is with China rather than with uh, Europe and Russia. That's been a kind of trend, I think, for a little while. And uh, they may or may not be right about that. But um, this is really forcing them to uh, confront the issue of how far they are prepared to go to stand up to Putin in Europe. I guess what you're saying is that there isn't a huge amount of confidence in Europe at the moment that uh, Mr. Biden and the Americans are going to be as robust as they would wish to be? Uh, Or are you saying that, in fact, there are divisions within Europe that uh, are also weakening the potential response of Europe within the framework of both the EU and NATO? There are for sure divisions among the European countries, but you don't read about them so much because the topic doesn't seem to hit all the front pages. The fact is And I'm not talking about the topic of the danger of Ukraine being invaded. That is very much in the front pages. But I'm talking about the lack of an EU-wide common defense and foreign policy, which, of course, should have been enacted years and years and years ago. And what is happening now had to happen sooner or later. But, for example, for sure there are differences of opinion For example, the French have always had a different approach with regard to the Russians compared to the approach of the Poles, the Hungarians, the Slovaks and the Czechs. Or more importantly, really, are the Baltic countries, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, who have been very much on the Russian radar screen ever since the Soviet Union was dismantled. And for obvious reasons, you just have to look at a map. You just look look at a map and you can immediately understand why these three countries are very much on the radar screen. Plus the fact that the Russians have still got an exclave in Kaliningrad on the sea. So the best way of understanding this is to look at a map. Yeah, indeed, indeed it is. And that's often the case in these things. Uh, but also, of course, the historical associations, as you say, which figure large in people's minds, as we know. I mean, every country has... Uh, Issues like that, which they, uh, you know, the French and the English do, the French and the Germans do over Alsace and, and those sort of areas. There's always disputed territories and history hangs heavily over them. And of course, the other point, I guess, is that um, it's not just the Baltic states, but uh, Sweden and Finland are not members of NATO at the moment. And they're getting, I think, nervous about this situation as well. So what do you think is going to happen? I mean, all that's happened so far is the Americans have said or, or NATO has said, well, let's be clear about this. The Americans have said that, you know, if Mr. Putin invaded Ukraine or pushed his troops into Ukraine, they're not going to make a 
military response. We're not going to go to war immediately over that. So that obviously uh, rather limits their response to this kind of aggression. But uh, presumably, as you say, Mr. Putin knows what he's doing here, and he's looking for things. He wants to negotiate some improved relationship between the two blocks, if you like. Well, I wouldn't call it a relationship. I'd call it a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The uh, state of play between the two countries, if you like. And I guess he's probably going to get something, isn't he? What What would you think here? I can guarantee you that he's going to get something. And I can guarantee you that he's going to be the winner. It doesn't mean that he's going to invade Ukraine anyway. But uh, if you just look and listen to the words by Jake Sullivan, he's the U.S. national security man, who actually stated in a press conference that the Americans are going to go into this discussion, which is taking place today in Geneva, with open eyes and an open mind and see how it goes. Now, I think that if you enter into a round of negotiation without knowing what you want, then you're obviously going to be the loser in these negotiations. And Putin knows that very well. What Putin wants is he wants to get back Ukraine and Belarus, and he wants to reconstitute the defunct Soviet Union. The man has got a gigantic great big chip on his shoulder and a very big gun on the table when he's negotiating. And I don't think that, as somebody wrote, I don't think that you can go into a negotiation where the other party has a great big gun and you all you put on the table is a box of chocolates. I think that's supremely naive. And so what Putin, with his chip on his shoulder and his big gun, wants to do is, as I say, he wants to reconstitute the old Soviet Union and the two top priorities are Ukraine and Belarus. And very close behind are the three Baltic states. And of course, there's also an issue, just to add into that, there's also an issue going on in Kazakhstan at the moment. Putin is also getting involved in that situation where there's been, uh, where he sees some threat to uh, Russian influence there. So it's not a particularly uh, happy picture from the point of view of the West and the Allies at this point. How do you think the relationship between NATO and the Americans, or between the EU and America? I mean, one of the issues here is the EU is not directly involved in this, is it? It is basically a NATO and US uh, matter uh, at the moment. So what is the EU doing, and what do you think the EU should be doing in this context? The EU should be speaking with one firm voice. They should demand a seat at the negotiating table, and they should know exactly what they want. Are they demanding a seat at the negotiating table? No, they're not. Do they know what they want? No, they don't. Are they speaking with one voice? No, most certainly not. You mentioned Kazakhstan. I think that does slightly complicate the issue, not necessarily the geopolitical issue, but the issue of whether there could be an influence for us investors on the financial markets because Kazakhstan is a gigantic producer of natural resources. They produce 40% of the world's uranium production, for example. And they're big oil producers or relatively big, important oil producers. And so if the Russians clamp down on Kazakhstan, that could add a sort of oil dimension to the equation. I don't think that we're there. And I think the matter has calmed down a little bit in 
and Kazakhstan. And I also don't believe that Putin wants the Kazakhstan thing to uh, get worse, the disorder, because then he's got a problem on his eastern flank as well as having a problem on his western flank in Ukraine. But just to come back to what you said, so Putin is a very dangerous and very strong man with a very big chip on his shoulder. And he's confronted with a bunch of weak interlocutors who don't know what they want and who don't speak in one voice. And those that should be consulted, you mentioned Sweden, you mentioned Finland, those are the key players. The Baltic states are the key players as well and the Central Europeans, they're quite simply not really consulted, at least not in a way that that you and I notice them to be consulted. Well, you mentioned, obviously, oil, but let's uh, talk about gas as well. And you mentioned the pipeline, the Nord Stream pipeline, which is the pipeline that brings a lot of Russian gas into Europe, and where there is phase two of that pipeline, where there's phase one already exists. But phase two, I think, is it's been built, but it hasn't yet been actually opened. And it obviously is a negotiating tool that in one sense both sides could use but the germans you mentioned the germans at the beginning i mean the germans you know have run down their nuclear power and seem determined to you know go ahead with phase two of this pipeline Uh, and it must obviously weaken their bargaining position vis-a-vis the russians what do you think is going on there in terms of germany and the pipeline and uh, russia it all started when uh, gerhard schroeder started sucking up to the Russians properly after he left office and became chairman of Nord Stream, which is a private sector venture. And he's been operating behind the scenes and is still operating behind the scenes and is a living example of how the German Socialist Party, the SPD, has always been inherently close to the Russians I mean, the Russians have always been infiltrating the left-leaning political parties across the whole of Europe, uh, Germany, Italy, Spain, all of them, and financing them where um, adequate and where appropriate. So the official reason for Nord Stream 2 is to have a direct pipeline, as you say, running parallel with the Nord Stream 1, which enables the Russians to feed gas into Europe and bypass Ukraine in so doing. Clearly, Putin is doing that also to make Europe dependent on him and also to weaken Ukraine. And the German government, the new German government, is doing its best to say, keep Nord Stream out of this discussion because it is a private sector venture and has nothing to do with politics. Of course, he would say that. Now, the Greens, on the other hand, they disagree because they want a green agenda for obvious reasons, which in turn, we can talk about this in a minute. You mentioned the nuclear energy discussion. That's a very interesting one, which we should touch upon. Um, So they're trying to keep Nord Stream out of it. But of course, the reality is that Nord Stream is right in the middle of it. And I can't tell you how that's going to pan out. The operation of Nord Stream 2, which is done by a separate company, needs authorization from the local regulator and hasn't got it yet. That's been put on ice until the spring or the summer months of this year. So that's more or less the situation. But it's worth mentioning also that, of course, current market conditions, if you like, are 
also strengthening Mr. Putin's hand in the sense that gas prices have been very high. There's some evidence he may have been deliberately holding back on supplies of gas into Western Europe through the existing infrastructure. Uh, gas prices are very high, and we have this inflation problem across Europe and the developed world. And the last thing that uh, I imagine that uh, the governments on our side of the border want is for more higher energy prices to continue for longer. That would make them even weaker domestically, politically, would they not? They certainly would, but of course they've scored a big own goal, uh, the Europeans there, because they keep banging on about global warming and the environment. And so the more they bang on about it, and the more of these climate summit meetings they hold, the less propensity there will be from uh, investors, oil and gas investors, banks who finance such projects, there'll be less propensity for such projects to exist. In other words, to exploit new oil rigs and so on. When the oil price shoots up, you get more players coming in, investing, digging. And when the oil price collapses, you have them uh, leaving the stage. But now they're leaving the stage, even though the oil price is very high. And the reason for that is because these famous wind turbine and green sources of energy don't exist yet and will take years and years until they're ready for use. And so you've got this void. And during this very long void period, you've got prices going up. And Putin knows that very well, and he's taking full advantage of it. Obviously, one of the weapons that the Americans and NATO do have, uh, and the EU to that as well, is the ability to put more sanctions on the, the Russians. We, they could do sanctions in terms of uh, financial activity. That's uh, would be their most potent weapon, I would say. And they also have the potential to put trade sanctions on, on the Russians. But these are not necessarily uh, as powerful tools as they once were. Do you think they're likely? And if so, you know, would they have any impact? Um, they are likely. So yes, they are likely. And no, they're not likely to have a lot of impact. I don't think that even in the old days, sanctions have ever been particularly effective. And, and there are plenty of examples of that, the UK um, and Rhodesia and all that, do you remember? The Russians have been subjected to sanctions now for a long time already. But, you know, even in a sanctions-ridden economy, there are always ways and means to wriggle out of it and to bypass them. And somehow they continue to, to work. The same in China, incidentally. But having said that, the US has more powerful tools in their box than other countries. For example, if they were to exclude Russia from the SWIFT payment system, it would mean that no Russians can make any payments in US dollars anywhere, neither inwards nor outwards. And that, given the fact that especially the natural resources are all priced in dollars, that would definitely hit the spot I say this theoretically because we haven't got, as far as I know, many examples of big countries like that being excluded from the SWIFT payment system. But as long as the dollar is the world's leading reserve currency, I think the Americans do have uh, more clout when it comes to sanctions. But as a last point to make, it's interesting, is it not, that Putin, his threats are very clear. It's very clear what he's threatening to do. He's threatening to invade Ukraine militarily with his one or 200,000 troops. 
and the counter threats made by Mr. Biden are wishy-washy sound bites without stating what he would do. So that's the box of chocolates that's on the table, whilst Putin has a huge gun on the table. So if you come back to talk about the financial markets and the impact of this, you're quite right in, in suggesting that uh, it hasn't yet weighed heavily on the financial markets. Um, but of course, if Mr. Biden and if the if NATO were to make much more positive or, if you like, bring their own gun to the table, that would have a negative impact on financial markets, would it not? So in other words, there is a risk that if you start to kind of up the ante, the financial markets would begin to uh, be more worried about it because it would appear to be at least a clear and present danger, as opposed to what is going on at the moment, where I suspect there's an element of feeling that, uh, well, this is just, you know, Putin negotiating for better terms. Do you think that's right or not? Do you think there is, I mean, there is a downside to being taking a very hawkish stance, if you like. That depends on your notion of traveling and arriving. But thinking back, um, President Reagan, in fact, what he did, he crippled the Soviet Union and brought it down precisely because he rearmed. And rearming, um, mind you, this is at the nuclear level, is a very expensive proposition. And the Russians were pretty much already bankrupt at the beginning of this rearmament process, the Soviets. By the end of it, they were completely bankrupt. And so the whole thing caved. I don't think that this situation, although I brought up the example, but I don't think that this situation is necessarily comparable because I don't think that we're talking here about nuclear escalation, at least not yet. It's perfectly possible, but not yet. I think that what we're talking about here is the conflict with boots on the ground. You actually have tanks clashing, NATO tanks and Russian tanks clashing and shooting at each other in Ukraine. What that would do to financial markets depends on whether that situation would hamper world trade or not. If it doesn't hamper world trade, if world trade can continue unabated or what's world trade there is at the moment, then it would be a sideshow for financial markets. But again, I don't know. I can't tell you with a 100% certitude because normally what financial markets are affected by is um, involvement by the superpowers when the superpowers clash. Now, uh, you can discuss whether Russia is a superpower or not, but the US certainly is a superpower. So I can't really tell you what would happen to financial markets. I said one issue that one could mention in that context is that you know, taking your comparison with Reagan for what it is, the fact is that uh, the United States and many European countries do have levels of debt now which are almost comparable to what they had during the Second World War in terms of uh, the amount of debt they've taken on. And therefore, you know, the idea of kind of ramping up a huge defense program like Reagan did, it would be, uh, it would be quite difficult to do in today's uh, market if it involves substantial amounts of spending by the American administration on, on military uh, hardware and, uh, and and whatever it might take. I think it's very astute of you to point that out. So the reality today is different. In fact, the opposite of what it was when President Reagan brought down the Soviet Union in that whilst the Europeans and the Westerners, including the, everyone in the West, have got huge debt-to-GDP ratios. I was looking at them again the other day and I was shocked 
At the same time, the Russian debt to GDP ratio is very reasonable, is very low. So you could argue that the Russians have got more in inverted commas, well, money, I suppose, to splash out. And therefore, they're not in the same condition today as the Soviet Union was when it disintegrated. So it's very good of you to point that out. It's very interesting. And it puts a new dimension into the discussion. And also, of course, there is this issue of inflation. I mean, that is a a big current topic at the moment. I know that uh, we've discussed this before. And I think you're of the view that uh, it will, the current phase of inflation will prove to be relatively short lived, or at least inflation will come down again quite sharply. But again, if we get into kind of military activity or military ramping up, that again is going to be inflation. We know that always is the case. So again, it's another constraint. It's perhaps an example of how you know, the fact that since the global financial crisis, the West has taken on a huge amount of debt and it is weakening their ability to act on the global geopolitical stage. Yes, but. Uh, but I think that although you're completely right, you just need to look back in history and see when were the inflationary periods the worst and it was during wars. But those tended to be world wars, I think. But this wouldn't be a world war, I don't think. It would simply be a local a local war, if if war is the right word. And it wouldn't go on for years and years. It would presumably, I don't know, it'd be much shorter. So whether that would ramp up the inflation rates from here, we'll have to wait and see. At the moment, what I'm hoping is that when we last spoke and we discussed inflation, um, I expressed my opinion that it would nonetheless be transitory, although the transition period would be longer. I'm hoping that that won't turn out to be wishful thinking, because if you read the press, the horror stories, if you look at what's happening in the stock markets, uh, the big rotation that's taking place, that's uh, pretty indicative. If you look at what happened to bond deals in the in the first week of this year, that was pretty shocking. But if you look at inflation expectations and if you look at the inflation-adjusted bond prices, especially the forward prices and most especially the forward-forward prices, uh, then your worry recedes and abates a little bit because we are heading now pretty soon for the moment from which the base effects of last year's inflation will kick in. And so the numbers will start to come down again closer to the levels that are tolerated and expected by the central banks. Yeah, so I think we've pretty much used up our time without getting on to the also interesting issues of other developments in Germany and in Europe, which we'll have to come back to next time, I think, because they are fascinating in their own right. I think the sort of point that I would I take away from all this is that in the current climate, where we know that we have an American administration which was pulled out of Afghanistan, Uh, We know all the cultural historical baggage about American involvement in faraway places. They tend to be only dragged in at the last minute as they were in the two world wars. It seems to me that uh, Mr. Putin, unfortunately for us, is playing on a pretty strong wicket for him at the moment, and he will get something out of this. Uh, And of course, I imagine at least if consulted public opinion at the moment in Europe, I don't think there'll be a huge majority which would say, we want to, you know, die in the ditches to defend Ukraine. You know, it is part of European history, but it's not as if it's been a central part of, of European history in most people's memories. 
So it's a it's a difficult one, I think. And uh, you know, obviously, Mr. Putin is hoping that he can effectively take over Ukraine and by one form, even if it's not military, he will eventually be able to install some kind of regime that is uh, even less uh, perhaps robust than the one they've got at the moment. So I mean, it does seem to me that could go. That could be the way it goes. Allow me to make a final point on all this. What we need to avoid, or I hope can be avoided, is a new Yalta agreement. Because the first Yalta agreement of 1945, I think it was, was an absolute disaster for those Central European countries that worry about a new Yalta agreement. And therefore, everything that's happened through NATO has served to neutralize the negative effects of the old Yalta agreement. And therefore, these countries are quite legitimately very worried that behind their backs, a new Yalta agreement is being reached. The second and last thing I would say is that, of course, you're right that Ukraine has been always part of European history. But I would go further. I would say Ukraine is part of the European geography. It is a European country. Indeed it is, and that's perfectly fair to, to make that point. What I was trying to make the point is that I think in terms of public opinion, I'm not sure that there is a huge sentimental or anything like that attachment to Ukraine. And of course, the difference, I suppose, the only difference with Yalta is that, you know, you could argue it was pretty shameful what happened there. But you have to bear in mind at the time, the Russians were actually in Berlin, uh, or they were, they were camped across most of the territory that was then conceded to them. So that's slightly different. And so the idea must be to stop Putin uh, getting into a similar position, essentially. Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this issue. That's been a very fascinating uh, discussion, Peter, particularly for me. And I'm sitting here in the, on the fringes of the continent, a long way away from Ukraine and uh, what's happening there. But uh, it is a concern. Uh, but it's not one that as yet, as you've correctly observed, impinged on financial markets. So thank you for that, Peter. We'll come back, uh, I think, in the next edition of this podcast and talk about some of those other interesting issues around Europe and uh, Germany in particular, where, as we know, there's a new government, coalition government. The Merkel era has ended and uh, a somewhat uneasy looking coalition uh, that's governing Germany now, including the Greens, which is uh, having some implications all, all across the piece. Thank you. I will sort up for that next discussion and I look forward to it, John. <laughs> Very good. Many thanks, Peter. You have been listening to the Moses and Methuselah podcast, hosted by Jonathan Davis and Peter Silen. These podcasts are independently edited and produced. You can subscribe to them on most leading podcast channels or by signing up on the Moneymakers or M&M podcast website. Please note that these podcasts are provided for information and background only and should not be regarded as constituting professional investment advice.